You're listening to the Diary Discoveries podcast brought to you by Sally'sDiaries.com. Now here's your hosts, Sally Ivey and Jeff Richards. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Diary Discoveries, the podcast. This is going to be a little bit different episode for us because we're not going to go into a diary. We've got some news to tell you. We're going to tell you about Sally's project that she's been working on, and then we'll tell you about a little adventure we went on that's kind of interesting, Yeah, history-wise. It's, it's been a long time since we've done a podcast, actually, about yeah, a month. About and- a month. There's a lot of reasons for that. And so when I tell you what I'm going to do, and then when I get back from what I'm going to do, we got a lot of diaries we want to get oh, into in yeah. podcasts. We've got so, uh, some fun stuff coming A lot up. of stories to get into here. So we're just kind of, we had a little bit of a break again. And because this had to be put on the back burner, when Sally gets back, we will be going into more stories. So first, we'll do some news from. The last episode, episode 12, Hawaii, Hollywood, and a horse. We still don't know who wrote the diary. And we've been trying. We've been looking at the passengers' lists on Ancestry, uh, going through quite a few names and crossing off the ones that don't match. But it's been very difficult. And sometimes you find that it is because, as all of us know, you know, names change. People get divorced. So this has been a quite the challenge actually for us. Yeah, well we know that they left Hawaii on a certain date. We know that they left LA or actually San Francisco on a date. So those passenger lists have to match up and the names. So we've been going through one by one, also looking for females of a certain age specifically. Right. With, yeah. 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 And we've got some narrowed down that we can do a little bit more research on. We Nothing really popped yet. No, and the tough thing about this diary is she mentions her birthday, of course, but she doesn't mention the year or how old she is, which would have just helped us so much. So the women that we're looking at for, um, as far as what we can tell in her picture, are, well, late 20s is pushing it. I, I think she's in her 30s. Yeah. To possibly 40s. Yes. And early. so that's the age frame that we're looking at. Right. We've come across a few and we're going, oh, this is them. And then you go, oh, no, they're not on the other ship. So we're still trying. Yeah, we're still trying. We're still trying. Well, anyway, we're going to keep at it. But uh, we do have a name for you. Uh, Remember at the end of the podcast, I think we were talking about, uh, she wrote about a man jumping overboard as they entered the L.A. Harbor. And this was on the return from Hawaii back to L.A., And so he jumped overboard to avoid deportation, and she wrote about that, and we did find out who he was. Yeah, and the reason we found out who he was is because, again, on the passenger list, I think on the last couple of pages, they list a lot of the crew sometimes, and he was listed as a stowaway. Yes. His name is Autocar Dwemke. And he was 21 years old. 21 years old. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, that would be an interesting story. Like, hey, what was going on? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why? I mean, in the 1950s, too. I mean, there were a lot of stowaways pre, you know, that I've read about in diaries. But in the 1950s, well, yeah, reasons for it. He had a reason. At least know? we found that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, uh, and and then quickly, I got a message from a friend of ours that uh, just had listened to the podcast. And as soon as she listened to it, she decided to start looking herself and try to find this woman. And she sent me some incredible black and white early photos from the 1950s of Andrea Leeds with a few women, friends of hers, at some parties. And I thought, oh my goodness, this has got to be our author because it looked so much like her one of the friends, but the names were listed on the photos or in the articles and things didn't match up. So it was still cool that somebody was out there trying to, you know, help us out. We appreciate the comments and stuff. So, and we appreciate you as listeners. We can't say that enough. And any help? Yeah, help, help. Help us. Well, uh, so that's it as far as the news. Mm -hmm. And now I think we should talk about... The project. Yes. I can finally actually talk about it. I've known about what was going on for me since, I believe, March. I was contacted by some folks in Vienna for a TED Talk, and it's called TEDx Vienna. And they asked me to speak about my diaries. And it was quite the process. You know, I had to get interviewed and audition. Yeah. Um, they're incredible people that are putting this thing on. And so one thing led to another, and I got this wonderful email in the spring, uh, or text actually from Christina, and she had said, guess what, you're in. And I went, oh, <laughs> you know, and it was it was so exciting. I'm one of 18 speakers, but <laughs> it's so interesting when it's, you know, back then when she told me, I thought, I've got all kinds of time, you know. Um, so I didn't really worry about it much. I, you know, started a little bit on my speech and stuff and what I'm going to talk about. But now I leave Wednesday. Wednesday. In two days, less than two days. And I'll be speaking at the Volks Theater in Vienna with um, 17 others. And my heart is beating fast just as I talk about it right now because it's... Yeah. It's a little scary for me. Well, it is. And it's not just, I mean, you've done speaking engagements mm-hmm. before. This is a TED Talk, and they have specific requirements. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the time. So that's been to get the things that you wanted to talk about and get it down to the 18 minutes. It's taken a lot of work. It has, because think about it. How do you, I mean, in, in one of the... Uh, lines that's in my speeches of talking about how I've read nearly in 35 years, 10,000 diaries. How do you condense that into 18 minutes? What stories do you tell? Who do you pick out? And it's not only that, it's about how I got started in all this and, and how it's changed my life and what it's done for me, which is, you know, how do I get 18 minutes with that? And as many of you know that know me, I'm very long-winded. Well, when you get started talking about the diaries, your passion comes out, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it, I don't consider it long-winded, and I would never say that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I would. I would no. with me. My children might, but I think in a very um, loving way, too. I just, you know, they go. It's it's funny because we'll be sitting in a group of people sometimes, somebody that doesn't know me, and they'll ask, so what do you do for a living? And I can see my children's eyes roll going, oh, no, here we go. We're going to be here for a while. And they all, they mean it in jest. They all, they do. I know my kids love what I do. I love what I do. And now I get to share that 
people that are working on the TEDx Vienna are giving me a chance to do that. And I am extremely appreciative and uh, blessed to be able to do this. Yeah. What do you think has been the biggest challenge with this for you? Oh, goodness, by far the biggest challenge is I could speak. I have no problem as, fear, as far as fear speaking in front of crowds. If I'm just able to sit on a stool and tell you my story, tell you about diaries, and then interact with the crowd. The challenge is preparing the speech, memorizing the speech, and giving the speech without it sounding memorized, and having that under 18 minutes. That's the biggest challenge. I just can't go off the cuff. Well, you've been working very hard at it. And and you have too. Well, you've been amazing helping well, me thank out. You. you really have. I don't know if our listeners want to hear all about that. <laughs> of course they <laughs> do. It takes two. We're, it takes uh, two sometimes. Yeah, in the fire department, we would we had a term for this. <laughs> People going back and forth with how good they are to each other. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, and true. I won't say it. No, no. <laughs> but I'm very proud of you for what you've done. No, and here I go. I, I'm still doing it. Yeah. But um, it's so, going to be a great opportunity. We'll be able to all share photos, maybe on my website afterwards. Um, I think they're going to tape it. And it's it's very exciting. So when yeah. I get back, I'll be able to just take a big sigh and go, oh, let's go read some diaries and share their stories and do some more podcasts. Yeah, Sally's ending segment of her speech is an amazing thing that happened. Oh, And yes. so I, we can't talk about it right now, no. and, but when you get back, maybe we can tell that story. One of the lines leading into that story is, um, finally, I want to give you a glimpse into the almost unbelievable. And then I tell the story. So that, yeah. that's a little teaser. Little teaser. Mm -hmm. And the theme of the conference is untold. Untold, right. yes. And that's why I haven't been able to share it on any of my sites or tell people about it because they weren't sharing who the speakers were until I think just a month ago, maybe not even that. And then they announced the speakers. So now we're announcing it here. Here we are. Here we go. Well, this is going to take place. And then when you get back, we'll get right back into our stories. Exactly. And telling more diary discoveries. Yay. But we wanted to share this with you, people that are listening, and we really appreciate you again. So now we're going to tell you about a little adventure that we took at the beginning of October. We visited another ghost town, and we've found that we really enjoy doing this. Sally had been doing it before we met, but I really like it. It's fun. Oh, I'd love to be doing it right now. It was such a fun trip, and it reminds me of the ghost town we visited in Idaho, uh, D. Lamar, and then Silver City. And uh, I've got to say, that's one of the best trips I've ever taken. And if you haven't done ghost towns, oh, do it with your family. Learn the history of the town. They're all over the place, and they're becoming rarer and rarer because the structures are yeah, falling down. just time but, is wearing them down, and they're falling apart. Yeah, but it is so worth it. It is so worth it. Okay, so we're going to tell you about this town, Wellington. So Wellington was built as a railroad station, and there was a small town there, few buildings and things, mostly housing and buildings for the railroad workers and to service the engines and that kind of thing. It was located just west of the old Cascade Tunnel. And so that was the old tunnel that the trains would come out of, hit Wellington, get restocked with, oh, they would unhook the electric engines that pulled through the tunnel and then rehook up the steam engines so they wouldn't use the steam ones inside the tunnel and so this this town served a purpose 
and it was populated by mostly railroad workers. Well, in 1910, there was a passenger train, the Seattle Express, and a mail train were both there stuck when an avalanche hit and swept the trains over and it killed 96 men, women, and children. Mm -hmm. And it was the deadliest avalanche in United States history. That's unreal to know. Just so close to us, it's... Yeah, I mean, a lot of folks wouldn't know that right in Stevens Pass in Washington State. No, when we went up there, we, thankfully, we had our GPS because the road right up on top of the pass is right off the highway, but you can hardly see it. Yeah, it's barely marked. Barely marked. Yeah. So you drive down three miles or so down to a trailhead, and this is part of the Iron Goat trail system. And that's where the site, the town of Wellington was. After the disaster, they renamed it to Tye, which uh, T-Y-E, and that's the river that goes down in the canyon below the town site. And didn't they rename the town because they they didn't want people to associate the avalanche exactly. and the deaths? Exactly. Yeah, it was a horrible tragedy. And the the carnage of the trains, uh, I mean, can you imagine the power, uh, how much snow had to come down off that slope to lift locomotives up and over and sweep them down an embankment mm-hmm. along with trees and all kinds of debris that happened. And, you know, what they found when they got down there to try to rescue people was horrific. Well, the crazy thing that I thought about this whole thing is the passengers were stuck on the train. How many days before the avalanche even hit? About a week. Yeah. Yeah. So they got stranded because of the unprecedented weather that was happening across the western part of the United States. So I know uh, from their book, I'm going to read a passage out of this, The White Cascade by Gary Christ. Fantastic book about this event. They mention in there the weather that was happening. There was many avalanches in Canada, the Rocky Mountains, the mining country of Idaho, and, of course, this one here in the Cascades. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was a a terrible time, and they were stuck because of the weather, and they thought that it was uh, one big storm, but it actually was, when they looked back, three separate weather events that happened all within short time. So here are the trains coming from the east, correct? Mm-hmm. Goes through the tunnel, mm-hmm. passes the town, goes past Wellington. And just they have, barely. Just barely. And yeah. they have to stop there because there's so much snow and so much the weather just will not let them continue right. on. There had been slides. And so uh, the train system was set up to get rid of snow. They had these large rotary snow plows that were mounted on the front of a train, and then they would be pushed by a, a locomotive. And you can imagine they're like a giant fan with these blades that would spin the snow and, and throw it up over the tracks. Which photos are in this book? Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, there's those great, I saw those great photos in this. Um, so tell me why stuck for a week? Why didn't they back the train up into the tunnel? Well, that was a thought. They thought about doing it. Problem was, they were worried about. The, if they used the steam, 
engines, like if they were running them and trying to get uh, heat and things for the passengers, that uh, the gases and stuff in the tunnel would be hazardous. That's why they used the electric ones. But they had already been disconnected and they couldn't get them. They just just stayed there on the track hoping that things would be clear. Right. And then the mail train came and was up alongside of them. And they were on the outside of the track. So, again, the train was headed west. And so the mail train was on the south side of the express passenger train. So, yeah, they were just stuck. And they tried as best they could to try to get to them. You know, there was a lot of criticism. And, of course, there was an inquiry after this event about what they did and what they didn't do. And really, the what it all boiled down to was that the weather overwhelmed them. Yes, and it did. they did everything they could to try to rescue the people, I mean, get the trains running and get the train down the mountain, but they just couldn't do it. There were some heroic stories. Yes. There really were. Yeah. Um, 17 people actually got off the train and said, to heck with this, and they hiked out. Before the avalanche. Before the avalanche, yeah. And their journey was treacherous. Mm -hmm. They barely survived, some of them. But uh, they, some were able to actually walk. But, of course, the women and children and uh, some of the uh, elderly were not able to even think of doing that. So they were just stuck. And um, unfortunately, this disaster hit. Well, it's amazing visiting this site, knowing that history. And there are some incredible structures up there, too, that we'll talk about. Yeah. Well, after this avalanche occurred, and, oh, it's also notable that... Uh, Two days after the first avalanche, they had finally, they were able to get one of the snow machines to remove the snow. That train got hit and swept over and killed two more people. So, yeah, it was kind of crazy. But they did build these snow sheds made of concrete afterwards. That was to prevent further avalanches, you know, in the future. And it took a long time to build. And the snow sheds, I I read about them all the time in the diaries that I read. You know, a lot of people travel from the east to the west coast, and it's usually in the Rocky Mountains or something like that. And they say, they write about, well, we passed through a snow shed. And they're not tunnels, but they're like tunnels for those people that don't know what a snow shed is. Yeah. And when you go up to the trailhead, you walk about a quarter mile and then you enter into the uh, remaining parts of the snowshed that are still there. They abandoned them in 1929 because they actually put a tunnel under all of this through the mountain. Uh, and it's, I believe, one of the longest tunnels in the United States. Mm-hmm. So then that is still in operation today. Well, this snowshed, I just want to say a little bit about it. I had no idea what I was going to encounter when I went up there. It is super tall. You're walking through a tunnel of concrete, you know, water's kind of, you can hear water going through it. It's a very long tunnel. I I think at night it'd be kind of spooky, but it's really a kind of a huge structure. It it's, really is. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's funny, beautiful. funny you say that because uh, for paranormal fans, uh, it is considered haunted. Yeah. And yeah. so people go up there to, I guess, Things have been heard and seen. And while we were there, we saw, like, remember, I looked down and there was this woman, like, in period dress. Yes. And I thought, I'm like, am I seeing something right now? But it was uh, a small film crew. Yeah. And they were doing a little movie. So that's all that was. So it's worth going up there to see this snow shed for sure. And there's a few trails. And if you do, it's nice to know the history of the 
event that occurred there. And so I'm going to read to you a passage out of this book by Gary Christ. It's called The White Cascade. It's very well written, and it's an excellent history about this tragedy. But this was about them trying to find a route through the north part of the Cascades. So there had already been established a rail route near Snoqualmie Pass, but they wanted one up on the north side. And so they sent scouts out, including one was a former Civil War guy named George McClellan, who, you know, he had his little deal with Lincoln at one point. He was the scout, and they just tried and tried and really couldn't find a good route. But finally, they ended up with something that they thought could work. And it really was a bit of an engineering feat to even accomplish what they did. But this is what he says in the book about the pass itself. In one of his original reports on the discovery of the pass in 1890, John Stevens had noted that, and this is in quotes, there was no evidence whatever that the pass in question was known to anyone. There were no signs of any trails leading to or from it within 10 miles in either direction. And then he goes on to say, given the massive snows, precipitous alpine terrain, inhospitable remoteness, and always unpredictable weather, there were some very good reasons why the pass had been shunned even by Indians on foot before the coming of the Great Northern Railway. Reasons that the passengers aboard the Seattle Express were soon to discover for themselves. For no matter what the railway propagandists might say to the contrary, there were indeed places in the country too wild to be tamed by the technology of the railroad, and Stevens Pass might be one of them. So the fact that the Native Americans said, yeah, to heck with this, we'll go somewhere else. Yeah, they didn't even try going over this. I mean, Stevens Pass, every time I drive through there, I feel like I've, I've been hit twice in my commuting history uh, on that pass, and uh, I always feel like I've cheated death. I just, I, it's still, it's still a beautiful, it's beautiful, yes, pass, but, but it's, it's treacherous. At, yeah, the, like any of them are in the weather so. changes, and you're exposed a lot on that mm-hmm. road too. This is driving by car, of course, but um, yeah, crazy weather changes where it can be raining in one place and then freezing in another. And, uh, and, and it's, it's just rugged and there's a river on one side a lot of the time and, you know, um, a lot of accidents up there. So I always, I'm glad to get through there. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, the, the site to go up there and take a hike and learn about this history is really cool. And we just wanted to share that with you because, um, you know, ghost towns are kind of neat. They are. And, you know, it just, I think they have a lot to do also with, with diaries because you were to drive on this pass, you would never know that Wellington was there. Yep. You just go on by it. And that has to do with so many ghost towns. They're just out there. And that so much life was there at one time. Yeah, it is. It's really cool to know your surroundings and know your area and go visit some of the past. All right. Well, we wanted to give you a little bit of history and a yep. little bit of education as we gave you the news of about Sally's project, and uh, in fact, she's leaving soon. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, she's leaving soon, and we promise more diaries to come. We've got several going to start reading, researching, and podcasting. So stay tuned. Yeah, there'll be some good stuff coming up. So again, thank you for listening, and we sure appreciate you. 
If you'd like to drop us a line, you can do that at diarydiscoveries at gmail.com. <laughs>